0: When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. New developments in the legal drama surrounding former President Donald Trump. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts.
1: Lots of news of all kinds going on right now.
0: And the latest updates on the 2024 election. The rematch is on. It's Trump-Biden part two. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app. Tonight on The Readout.
2: Are there any other recordings that we should be concerned of? Uh,
1: I don't know of any recordings that you should be uh, concerned with because I don't do things wrong. I do things right. I'm a legitimate person.
3: The legitimate person is trying out pathetic new excuses for his purloined classified documents as the January 6th investigation moves forward with two big names meeting with the special counsel. And despite Trump's increasing desperation, Kevin McCarthy is still predictably genuflecting at his MAGA master's feet, reportedly apologizing for daring to suggest that Trump might not be the strongest candidate. And President Biden delivers a potent message for the presidential campaign. The American economy is roaring back after the pandemic, as Republicans try to take credit for infrastructure they voted against. But we begin tonight with the ongoing humiliation of Kevin McCarthy, the Republican House Speaker more known for his fears than for wielding the gavel. The latest fiasco kicked off on Tuesday when McCarthy went on CNBC to discuss the messiness of a twice impeached, now twice indicted former president becoming his party's nominee.
0: But do you think he could win an election? Could he win an election? Can he win that election? Yeah, he can. You think he can?
1: The question is, is he the strongest to win the election? I don't know that answer. But can somebody, can anybody beat Biden? Yeah, anybody can beat Biden. Can Biden beat other people? Yes, Biden can beat him. It's on any given day.
3: Kevin, my Kevin, have you learned nothing? (sighs) As to be expected, Trump world went ballistic over those comments, forcing McCarthy to pivot to cleanup mode with a mob and everything, scrambling over to Breitbart to backtrack what he said. He told the far-right website that he believes Trump is stronger today than he was in 2016. And that, as usual, the media is attempting to drive a wedge between Trump and House Republicans. The saga certainly did not end there. After all, Trump's wrath has destroyed careers and almost democracies. According to The New York Times, McCarthy also called Trump on Tuesday to apologize. So let's just pause for a moment. I mean, can you imagine Sam Rayburn, the longest serving House Speaker, apologizing to Harry Truman for bruising his ego as the U.S. transitioned from war to peace? I mean, can you imagine outspoken Speaker Tip O'Neill groveling to Jimmy Carter for marching out of step with the party? Or just try try to picture Nancy Patricia D'Alessandro Pelosi groveling before Barack Obama or Bill Clinton for insufficient party line praise. I mean, of course you can't, because that would never happen. These weren't fearful devotees. They were legendary House speakers, who I might add, never gutted their own power and dignity just to get the job. Which brings us back to Kevin. Politico is reporting that none of his recent moves, the backtrack, the apology, have assuaged the fury in Trump's inner circle. McCarthy, they feel, has taken advantage of the former president when it benefits him and failed to show unflinching loyalty in return. They don't understand how he could misspeak on something so critical. Unflinching loyalty? Sounds about Trump. Of course, McCarthy has enraged Trump before, most notably when he said this on the House floor after the January 6th attack on the Capitol.
1: The president bears responsibility for Wednesday's attack on Congress by mob rioters.
3: But then, two weeks later, (laughs) he was on a plane to Mar-a-Lago to bend the knee and kiss Trump's ring. I mean, what can you expect from a lawmaker described by The New York Times as a golden retriever of a man who, back in 2018, cozied up to Trump by bringing him a jar of only red and pink Starbursts because those were Trump's favorite flavors? My Kevin Just goes to show how truly gutless and powerless he is, and exactly who remains the undisputed leader of the Republican Party. It is why Trump's party is seemingly cowed, even as we learn the extent of his recklessness and lawlessness, and why most of his Republican presidential rivals refuse to even utter his name. Joining me now is MSNBC political analyst Matthew Dowd and Charles Blow, columnist for The New York Times. Um, what a mess. What a mess! I don't even know where to begin with this, Matthew. Uh, let me start with you. This is Politico's reporting um, on why. So, so the, first of all, I, I, before I even tell you Politico's reporting, your thoughts on the fact that a Speaker of the Whole House Representatives feels he has to grovel to a person who is just actually a you know retired golfer in a retired you know guy playing golf in Florida.
1: Well, you know it doesn't. It probably doesn't surprise you. It didn't surprise me. Uh, It surprises me only in the frequency and the instantaneousness of it. It doesn't surprise me in that. I was thinking about Donald Trump and the Republican Party today, and it's almost as if Donald Trump is a Wizard of Oz in an alternative universe, where he actually takes your brain, he takes your heart, and he takes your courage. He doesn't give them to you. He takes it away from you. Every person that has tried to link up with Donald Trump loses their thought process, loses their ability to have compassion and empathy and loses their courage. Kevin McCarthy is the latest one in that thing. And the other thing I say is anytime I've heard in politics, when somebody says they misspoke, it means they accidentally told the truth.
3: A hundred percent. I mean, the thing is, Charles, there are these moments of clarity that Republicans have, including Kevin McCarthy, where he says Donald Trump, Trump was responsible morally and ethically for January 6th. And then it's like they snap out of it and realize, oh, my God, I'm terrified of this guy. I mean, now to get to this political reporting, he can't even tell Trump why he's not endorsing him. He's had to use the excuse. Kevin McCarthy has told some Trump backers he's holding off because an endorsement might hurt Trump by tying him to the party establishment and suggested that as the highest ranking Republican office, just two heartbeats away from the presidency, perhaps he should stay neutral. That's what he has to do instead of being like, I just don't want to endorse you. He's terrified of him.
4: Absolutely. And he's just like most Republicans in Washington. They have been bowing and scraping for so long that their backs are permanently bent. They do not seem to realize that it was their kind of acquiescence that gave Trump this power in the first place. They refused to stand up to him and they didn't do that for so long. That it, that it fed into Trump's strongman argument that no one will ever stand up to me, I am the strongman, And for Trump's supporters who like that in him, it only bolstered his, his image. And now it is, they've made him so strong within the party that it is very hard to stand up to him and keep your job. In addition to that, you know, Trump has been playing a very long game here uh, uh, with trying to line up things hoping that he doesn't get uh, indicted by further indictments, hoping that he doesn't go to trial and get convicted, hoping that he does not wind up in prison, hoping that he gets back into the presidency in time to actually squash the the federal investigation into him, and then hoping that his endorsement of Kevin McCarthy after the third vote—it took 15 votes to get McCarthy into this spot— will ensure that McCarthy will be so beholden to him that there will be no way that he will ever be impeached again. This is what Trump is doing. He's he's tied McCarthy's hands.
3: Well, and he's right, though. You know, Matthew, isn't he right? I mean, can you imagine Kevin McCarthy's life is pretty crappy now. He has to answer to Marjorie Taylor Greene and other people of that uh, caliber. Um, if Trump were president again and, you know, in, in some horrible universe, he would be even worse off. Let, let me just inherent in the idea of running against somebody in a primary is saying that they shouldn't be president. Right. So you have all these people running with Trump in the primary, which inherent in that is saying, well, he shouldn't be the president. I should be. Let me just show you two of them, One of them is the one person, well, the one of two that actually have the courage to even say Trump's name. and That's Chris Christie. And another one is the guy from Florida who doesn't know how to pronounce his own
0: name. Take a look.
4: I just want to understand the other candidates who won't
0: even mention his name. Like, say his name, man, say his name. Do you believe
2: that Trump violated the peaceful transfer of power? A key principle that of American democracy that we must uphold. I wasn't anywhere near Washington
1: that day. I have nothing to do with what happened that day. Obviously, I didn't enjoy seeing, you know, what would happen, but we've got to go forward on this stuff.
3: I mean, Matthew, he won't even use I mean, the teenager looked more presidential than DeSantis, DeSantis, whatever.
1: You know, it's the illogic of this, whatever, there's 11 candidates running against them. And Chris Christie is the only one that's making a forthright argument on it. Asa Hutchinson to a degree, but a lot subtler. It's as if they don't understand that in a competitive race, you run against somebody. So like if Ron DeSantis wants to be the Republican nominee, he's running against Donald Trump but he doesn't seem to want to play that. I actually think the smartest one of all these is Chris Christie, who I have many faults with and how he enabled Trump along the way. But at least he understands that there's two lanes. There's the Trump lane, which Trump occupies wholly. And then there's the non-Trump lane. And the only way you can succeed at all in the non-Trump lane is not being Donald Trump and doing it (laughs) forthrightly. That's what I don't understand.
3: I mean, even worse is Nikki Haley, uh, you know. Oh, yes. I I, 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 mean, I OK, I'm just going to go ahead and play <laughs> uh, for y'all. Um, here she is, because she can't even figure out within four minutes what her position is on on Donald Trump versus the current president.
1: There's clearly something there and there's clearly something that needs to be found out. This is about accountability. We can't keep chasing every drama that surrounds Trump.
3: So, so she says, and literally that was just a couple minutes apart. We didn't separate it by very much. She's saying when it comes to Biden, we got to figure out something. There's got to be something wrong as far as Hunter Biden. But when it comes to Trump's family, whoa, come on now, don't get crazy. You know, I mean, Charles, this is, they're so terrified of him. But why are they running against him then?
4: Well, oh, you know, I, I, I take a different position. I'm not sure they're running against them. I, you know, some of them are never don't have a shot at, at all, so they're running for book deals and speaking engagement. But other of them seem to be running to be in Trump's cabinet. That's the only way it makes sense to me. If you want to actually be part of the next Trump administration, you run by not criticizing the person who you actually think is going to win. I think that they think that he, if he is not indicted, I mean, sorry, if he is not imprisoned, if he's not convicted and imprisoned, he's going to be the president. And they believe that they will, by not, you know, kind of uh, uh, confronting him, they will be part of the next administration.
3: I mean, that's the only logical answer. And Matthew, this is—I think we have to think about constructing the world that they're building for themselves. What I don't understand is, behind the scenes, you hear how many of these people despise Donald Trump. And they would be absolutely miserable in a world in which he was president again, and really ruling without any—just completely unfettered Donald Trump, if he ever were to come back, destroying our democracy, but also destroying their lives. And I don't understand why they just don't take the easy way out. This man is is indicted. He's on his way to being indicted Probably again, it's it's highly likely he'll have an ankle bracelet on at minimum within a year. They could take the easy way
1: out. The the problem is what and and something what Charles said before is they've created this monster and now all the villagers are feeding the monster. So the villages are they could have stopped this monster five, six, seven years ago. They didn't. And now they've turned it over and the monster has become fed and supported by the base of the Republican Party. That's the fundamental problem in America today. Donald Trump can come and go. I think he's a he's a a certainly approximate problem for the democracy and the Constitution. The problem is now is they've created a political party that every single candidate that's going to emerge from that cesspool will be somebody like Donald Trump or worse.
3: Well, and and Charles, I think that is the bigger picture here, right, is that I don't see what the Republican Party is now other than that, because all the people who come up behind Trump are just other versions of him, like DeSantis or worse. And that they're creating a sort of a culture within the party that is perverse and the base of the party and the people who are supposedly its leaders are just feeding each other more and more rage and trash. And I don't see how that vicious cycle ends.
4: Right. Yeah. It's hard for me to predict the future. Right. So when the Tea Party was happening, it was it would be impossible for me to predict that the MAGA movement come along and literally swallow it whole. Uh, So I I don't know what the next thing is. There's always a next thing in politics. But for now, the MAGA movement reigns supreme in the Republican Party. It is the Republican Party of
1: today.
3: Yeah. And I guess this is this used to be your party, Matthew. <laughs> I mean, you know, the, you know, God bless the, the queen. Yeah, the so queen long. Is, is... It's
1: it's so long. It ain't the party anymore. It ain't the well, party anymore.
3: You know, I, we, we many of us used to think of the sort of love of George W. Bush is sort of cultish. Right. And so but this takes that to such a different level. Is there something that you can see in your former party that breaks the fever? Will it take just losing so badly everywhere, every election, up and down, till they are so marginalized that finally they give up and say, let's try to find someone that at least seems rational?
1: Um, You know, I've given this a lot of thought and talked to a lot of Republicans who are actually all concerned about this. And I'm no longer a Republican. I'm an independent in this. But I don't see any rational... Uh, any way out of this in the current standing of it. So I think actually the Republican Party as exists today has to lose so badly and be burned to the ground that something new emerges. It's almost like you need a Mount St. Helens to go <laughs> erupt it, wipe out the landscape, and have new trees grow up. That's the yeah. only way out of this. Because as of today, it's the rage, the cruelty, the disrespect is only going to be magnified in the course of this. It has to be, it has to lose badly.
3: And the vicious cycle the, the challenge, the irony is the way they're operating, they can only lose. And then that makes them even more angry. It's wild. Uh, Matthew Dowd, Charles Blow. Thank you both very much. Up next on the readout, Trump tries out a new excuse for hoarding classified documents. And it's just as lame and ludicrous as all the others. The readout continues after this.
5: and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit plannedparenthood.org future. That's plannedparenthood.org slash future.
3: If it is a day ending in Y, you better believe Donald Trump has a new excuse for his mishandling of classified documents. Following the release of the audio recording of his 2021 conversation regarding at least one of those documents at his Bedminster golf club with people, none of whom possessed a security clearance, we are now up to excuse number, I don't know, well, I've I've just lost count. Trump told Semaphore yesterday that he was not showing off classified documents. It was bravado. Quote, I was talking and just holding up papers and talking about them, but I had no documents. I don't have any documents. Semaphore adds, ads, and when asked about his use of the word plans during a Fox News interview earlier Tuesday to describe some items he may have highlighted in the 2021 meeting, Trump insisted he was referring to building plans and plans for golf courses strewn about his desk. Well, that explains it. He was actually just showing them his renovation plans, and he was really just trying to decide if he was going to love it Or list it. Now, there are still questions about the document itself. There is no evidence that the government ever got it back. Earlier this month, multiple news outlets reported that Trump's lawyers told the DOJ they haven't been able to find the document related to Iran. But what is known is that special counsel Jack Smith has been interested in what else could be at Trump's New Jersey golf club. The New York Times reports that the special counsel had subpoenaed surveillance footage from Bedminster, much like they did from Mar-a-Lago. And at one point last year, investigators discussed executing a search warrant at Bedminster over concerns that more documents were stashed at the club. Joining me now is MSNBC legal analyst Andrew Weissman, former FBI general counsel and former senior member of the Mueller probe. And Barbara McQuaid, former U.S. attorney, professor at the University of Michigan Law School and MSNBC legal analyst. Uh, It's great to have you both here. I'm so excited, Barb, in person. Um, I'm going to start with you. Ladies first on this one. So let's talk about the import of the tape, because Trump is now trying to say it was just bravado, which that basically means I'm a liar, which is a weird uh, excuse. Um, But the thing about the tape is that it does suggest that maybe he actually just was lying, right? That it's possible he was just waving around fake things. But is that a defense? Because if he was if he's a liar, can't The prosecutors just use that in court?
6: Yeah, I think there are two reasons that this episode is really important and it's why it's included in the indictment. Um, Number one, if you look at the language of the indictment, it says Trump showed the document to the people in the room. Yeah. And they have the benefit of having talked to those people as witnesses who will have to testify at trial. So the jury is going to get to hear more about this than we did. They're going to hear from these witnesses. Right. And if they said in the indictment that it was shown, I think they think they can prove it was shown. Yeah. So I think they've got that. I think the other important reason it's included here, even though, as you pointed out, it's not a substance of the charge, is it shows Donald Trump's mindset. Now, remember, this is the charge here is not about classified or not classified. It's about national defense information, the disclosure of which could injure the national security. Of the United States, right. so these statements when he says about I could have declassified it, but it's not; it's secret stuff. It's you know, he he is suggesting that he knows that this is very sensitive material. Right. So it tends to go to that willful intent that's necessary to prove the case.
3: Right and okay, so let me let me play a couple of things here. Uh, this is the first one. So Philip Bump wrote a great piece. Uh, he listened to the tape again and he realized that the thing that sort of stands out is this part, uh, Andrew, where he seems to say the words, but this is classified. So to Barb's point, it's saying it gets to the point that he knew that it was classified. So here is that sound bite right now. It's very short. This is from the tape. I
1: think we can probably,
7: right. Yeah. I
1: don't know. We'll, we'll have to see. Yeah, we'll have to try to figure out a, a yeah. See, as president, I could have declassified yeah. it. Now I can't, you know, but this is Yeah, now, now
7: we have a problem. Isn't
3: that interesting? Isn't that interesting? It is interesting, um, Andrew, because I could hear it. I don't know if you heard it, but there's that very low sort of voce, but this is classified. Is that significant?
2: Sure, absolutely. Um, You know, he is charged with retaining national defense information. Uh, So his saying that this document is classified is uh, something that's obviously of great relevance to uh, the prosecution and to the jury. Um, It's also notable that to this idea that it is just bravado. And by the way, I think bravado, there's another B word that you could fill in for bravado as to what's going on here. Um, And, um, you know, this was something that was just business plans or a newspaper clipping which he was one of his stories when he's showing it you would have heard on tape what are you talking about how is this classified um and he is talking about this document as it relates to undermining mark milley's claims with respect to the invasion of a foreign country that that is not business plans about a golf course i mean so his whole story to me is just is just preposterous i mean i really think the, the strategic issue for Jack Smith is going to be, is he going to list out for the jury all of the false claims that Donald Trump has said about the documents at Mar-a-Lago and Bedminster and leave to the jury the obvious point, which is, if you're innocent, do you make up all of these claims? Remember, he started by saying everything was actually planted. Now he's saying, oh, no, 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 it's not planted. It's just that it's, it's bra- bravado. I mean, you know, this is one where you really do have to have faith in the jury system that they can look at this and they will take an oath to follow the law as set forth. And if they just, you know, follow their common sense. I mean, when someone says this is bravado, you know, you can be sure a New York jury would be like, "Uh uh-huh, I got it, (laughs) guilty.
3: Well, I mean, the thing is, right, why would he be discussing reno plans about Bedminster in an interview about Mark Meadows, because Bedminster has nothing to do with Mark Meadows. So saying that this was about renovation plans, that doesn't even make sense, because they're there to talk about Mark Meadows, so they'd want to talk about things related to the presidency. It doesn't make sense. Okay, let's listen to another defense. So Alina Haba, who's sometimes his lawyer, I think she's his lawyer in his defamation lawsuit against Eugene Carroll, which is wild that he's doing that. But then in this case, she's just being his spokesperson. Here is her defense versus the recording. Here is her defense.
7: Here's a tape. Here's a tape of saying what? A president can declassify documents. I'm no longer a president. I can't declassify documents now.
1: But what are the, to the people that say he says on the tape that that uh, he can't declassify it? It's his top Correct. secret and he, can't, he and he can't declassify it. He
7: wasn't president at the time of the tape. He couldn't declassify. He knew that. But he wasn't oh, he was saying, saying it wasn't he was saying declassified. He was, okay. he was saying presidents can declassify. As a non-president, you can't. That has nothing to do with it. It's a red herring. Barb, no.
3: Here's what he actually said. Because and here's the thing. She's like talking about what he was saying wasn't done. No, he's talking about what is. The word here is is. Take a listen to this and pay attention to is
2: except it is like highly
1: confidential secret. (laughs) This is secret information. as president, I could have it. now I can't, you know, but this is
6: not wasn't declassified, is. It is. Yeah, not only that, he uses the word secret, which is a classification level. My guess is the document itself is stamped secret. That, right. Uh, and so he's looking at it and says, this is secret. And secret information is defined as information, the disclosure of which would cause damage to the national security of the right. United States. I think if you listen to the context of that conversation, it's very clear they're talking about a specific piece of paper.
3: Exactly. OK, let's, let's go to the other sort of reporting that's happening, Andrew. You also have had Rudy Giuliani go in and testify in the other— Grand jury. And this is the grand jury that seems to be about fake electors, et cetera. For those who don't remember, Rudy Giuliani was trying to get different states to flip their electors and give to Trump. I think we have the audio of one of the calls he made to Pennsylvania Republicans.
2: Another legislator, Pennsylvania House Speaker Brian Cutler, received daily voicemails from Trump's lawyers in the last week of November.
0: Mr. Speaker, this is Rudy Giuliani and Jenna Ellis. We're calling you together because we'd like to discuss, obviously, the election.
2: Hello, Mr. Speaker, uh, this is Jenna Ellis, and I'm here with Mayor uh, Giuliani.
0: Hey, Brian, it's Rudy. I really have something important to call to your attention that I think really changes things.
2: Cutler felt that the outreach was inappropriate and asked his lawyers to tell Rudy Giuliani to stop calling, but Giuliani continued to reach out.
0: I understand that you don't want to talk to me now, I just want to bring some facts to your attention and talk to you as a fellow Republican.
3: Andrew, it's almost harassment at this point. Do you have a sense of how far along that part of the investigation and that grand jury might be?
2: No idea. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) You're so good at predicting. (laughs) Yeah. But I
3: mean, I, do you get you know, the sense think, if you're at the Giuliani stage, how much further would they need to go? Because you'd think they'd want Meadows. You'd think they'd want Giuliani. You'd think they'd want, you know, who, who do you who would signal to you that this is getting to the end?
2: Yeah. So what, what I will say was that I, I don't know look, sort of where they are. But to me, once the documents case was done, indicted and, you know, underway, you have now been hearing about all sorts of activity, the latest being this interview of uh, Mr. Giuliani by the federal investigators. We'd we'd heard about this in connection with the Atlanta investigators, but I think what we're seeing is that the pace is picking up at the federal level. Um, Rudy Giuliani, I think, is fascinating because the issue is whether he's going to say he did anything wrong in representing to various electors Um, various facts? Or is he going to be like a Mr. Corcoran or Christina Bob saying, you know, I was lied to. And yes, what I said to them was wrong, but I didn't know it was wrong. And and that's Mm. sort of the conundrum of Rudy Giuliani is whether he's going to be sort of saying I'm like Corcoran um, and Bob, where, yes, I can be a witness for you, but I don't have any exposure. And I think that's probably what is going on now is where is he on that? And, you know, that's one where what we don't know is how much evidence Jack Smith that has that Rudy Giuliani was knowingly saying something that was false.
3: Absolutely. And I think what he what uh, Donald Trump needs to be worried about in both of these cases This ain't the people who prosecuted OJ. They know the answer to the question. They know that the glove fits before they ask anybody to put it on. They are prepared. Uh, Andrew Weissman and Barbara McQuaid, thank you both very much. And coming up, President Biden heads to Chicago for a well-deserved victory lap on America's stunning post-pandemic economic rebound. We'll be right back. Thank you.
1: is working. When I took office, the pandemic was raging and our economy was reeling. Supply chains were broken. Millions of people unemployed. Hundreds of thousands of small businesses on the verge of closing after so many had already closed. Literally hundreds of thousands on the verge of closing. Today, the U.S. has the highest economic growth rate leading the world economies since the pandemic. The highest in the world. That was President Biden
3: today in Chicago touting his economic agenda, which he is now calling Bidenomics. And to be fair, the president does have quite a few economic achievements to brag about. The unemployment rate is 3.7 percent, near the lowest it's been since 1969, With the jobs numbers in recent months outperforming expectations, we've also seen the inflation rate cool significantly from the highs we saw this time last year, from over 9 percent to now 4 percent, which is much lower than what most other countries are currently experiencing. And that's not an accident. It is the direct result of some of the policies Democrats have passed and President Biden has signed into law like the Inflation Reduction Act, the Chips and Science Act, and the Infrastructure Bill, which some Republicans are now actually trying to take credit for, despite the fact that they literally voted against it. Or, as the great Nancy Pelosi put it, they voted no and are taking the dough. Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville, for example, put out a tweet boasting about how much money his state is receiving for broadband access, money that's straight out of the legislation that he opposed and voted against and calling it vital for the success of our rural communities and for our our entire economy. To which the president, in full dark Brandon mode, replied simply, See you at the groundbreaking. Joining me now is Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, uh, Governor Gretchen Whitmer. And, you know, I, I have friends that live in your state, so I'm always tempted to say big Gretch because I know that is what the, that's what the peoples call you. Um, let's talk about this because, you know, Biden is out there bragging about the economy and he ain't wrong. I was just talking with my producer before we came on about this graph. I'm going to let you put your earpiece back and it is pretty wild when you look at this graph. This is wild. I didn't even realize that Biden's job creation was this dope. I mean, his job creation outflanks like three other presidents added up together. That's his monthly job growth per job growth. It's something. Um, What do you make of the disconnect between that very clear data and people's perception that Biden hasn't got this great economy?
7: Well, at first, I'm thrilled to be here with you. And, um, you know, I, I think that the president's plans are working. We are seeing, as you pointed out, low unemployment, high job growth, low inflation. I mean, it's really amazing what is going on in our economy right now. And people have this tendency to move on to the next thing. And of course, we've got big big challenges but the president's plan is working here in Michigan we're going to be getting 2.4 billion dollars for rural for broadband and it will apply to rural communities as well as urban communities 99 percent of the households and businesses in Michigan will get connected because of of what President Biden has done. So Bidenomics is working. And I think people are gonna see it when they're driving, they're seeing the orange barrels, they're seeing the work being done. And they know that um, it's when Democrats lead and when President Biden is leading, our lives are getting better. Our standing in the world is getting better. And I think that's something all Americans benefit from.
3: So, I mean, and I look at the polls
7: and I see that about a third of people say the
3: economy is good, right? And it, it, it is just arguably not true, right? The economy is good. Like, it's just sort of factually good. Do you think—because you're in an executive role, so I guess you can sort of relate to this, right? So when you—you you guys have passed a bunch of bills. I mean, I, we've got a list of them here. Um, you know, you repealed this abortion ban, this 1931 abortion ban, reaffirmed civil rights protection for LGBTQ people, implemented a red-flag gun, flag, red flag gun law, cut taxes, expanded affordable housing. When that stuff passes— it takes a while for the actual, the economic things to actually get started, right? The abortion ban, that's right away. But do you think it's because the shovels didn't go right in the ground the minute it passed and that it's sort of a lagging indicator? And as you said, now that they see the trucks moving, maybe people will change their view.
7: Yeah, I think so. You know, in, in the last election, my opponent talked about how we hadn't done enough to fix the roads. But it flew in the face of the evidence that people saw every single day, the orange barrels all across the state of Michigan. I think we're going to see the exact same thing when it comes to Bidenomics, that people are going to understand that those all those job openings that were unfilled, or all those jobs that people were looking for are now job openings, because unemployment is at an all-time low. I was just in Europe, um, traveling for economic 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 development purposes, inflation is 9% over there. It has dropped dramatically here. And it's not a coincidence. This president knows how to get things done. This president is staying focused on what matters. He doesn't play divisive politics. He doesn't call people names. He doesn't fire off irresponsible tweets. He does the work, and the work is paying off, and people are going to start—they're feeling it already, but they're really going to start to see it's undeniable that this country is in a stronger position, and our lives are better off because of the work that the president's done.
3: Do you think that some of the disconnect, too, is also kind of the the sort of negative things that are happening that have nothing to do with the president, right? I mean, the abortion issue, I think, is really weighing on a lot of women, and I think weighing on mood, because there is this sort of sense of panic. And I know that statistically Michigan is now starting to see more people flooding in because it's a free state. And the states that are, you know, now, you know, sort of womb slave states or whatever you want to call them in the South and these in the West where people can't get abortions, people have to leave and find their way to places like Michigan to exercise bodily autonomy. Do you think that the stress that people feel over that or things like rent, you know, it sort of eclipses people's sort of objective knowledge of what's happening in the economy? Could that be one of the things that's sort of creating? People's sort of negative vibe.
7: Well at the end of the day, joy, you know, and and we all know all politics is local. What is happening in your life is going to inform whether or not you think things are are going well and and you're able to put food on the table and take care of your family and live a high quality of life. Make your own decisions about your body, Have fundamental rights in your workplace and in your your home. Um, we see culture wars playing out, and we got a president stay staying focused on the fundamentals. But we need to not, you know, rest, even though we've secured a lot of these rights here in Michigan, it is all very precarious because what yeah. happens at the federal level is ultimately going to impact whether or not we can make our own decisions about our bodies. And we have fundamental rights and are respected and protected under the law. Whether our kids can go to school without being fearful that there aren't there aren't um, background checks happening when people are buying guns. These are the freedoms that this president um, has is working so hard to secure for all Americans. But right now, it's a patchwork. And that's why this upcoming election is so important, because I don't want to see my state revert back. I want to see other Americans step forward and have the same kind of freedoms we've secured here in Michigan.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think the idea of a national abortion ban will be, will sober the minds of a lot of people. And let's just be, be real clear. The economy, on, you, you can't really deny it. Bidenomics, you know, he can brag about it because it, the economy is objectively uh, in good shape. Uh, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, thank you very much. Really appreciate you coming on. And for Thanks, more sorry. on the success of, uh, oh, and for more on the success of Bidenomics, don't miss my colleague and pal Stephanie Rule's exclusive interview with Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen tonight at eleven to p.m. Eastern, right here on MSNBC. That's definitely a must-watch. Still ahead, new reporting on just how far the head of the Wagner Group was prepared to go in his attempted uprising against Russia's military. We'll get a live report from the great Ali Velshi, who is live in Kiev.
4: Next.
1: He has become a bit of a briar around the world. It's not just NATO, it's not just the European Union, it's Japan, it's, it's, you know, it's 48. Do
7: you think Vladimir Putin is weaker today than he was before all those events? I know
6: it was. Were you
3: Despite being in a weakened position, as President Biden put it, Russia's Vladimir Putin is still assaulting Ukraine in horrific ways, striking civilians in the eastern Ukrainian town of Kramatorsk last night. This comes as we're learning more about the attempted mutiny last weekend. The New York Times is reporting that one of Russia's top generals, Sergei Serovkin, had advanced knowledge of Prigozhin's plans to stage a rebellion. Strikingly, U.S. officials said they were trying to learn if Surovkin actually helped plan that rebellion. And there's also new reporting from The Wall Street Journal that Prigozhin planned to capture Russia's military leadership. Those plans were accelerated after Russian intel became aware of the plans. As the journal notes, the plot's premature launch was among the factors that could explain its ultimate failure. But it raises questions about the extent of Putin's authority after Moscow failed to prevent Wagner troops from marching almost all the way to Moscow, despite the Kremlin's knowledge of the conspiracy. Joining me now from Kiev, Ukraine, is MSNBC chief correspondent Ali Velshi. Ali, my friend, please unroll this for us just a little bit. Because now the coup sounds a lot broader, the coup attempt, I should say.
0: It definitely, because we were, we've been using all those words. We're not sure if it's a coup or a mutiny or a rebellion, but now this sounds. This has got that sort of feeling of people were involved in it. So you you laid it out pretty well there. Um, uh, Prigozhin, uh, somebody found out about this thing. Uh, Russian intelligence found out about it. So. It it seems that it's possible that he could have rushed this whole operation. He went to a town called Rostov-on-Don. It's the largest uh, town in southwestern Russia. And he believed that the general that he was looking for, Gerasimov, and the defense minister, Shoigu, were there. And he had intended to arrest them or capture them or do something with them. And they weren't there when he got there. Uh, now, he claims that he was not this wasn't a coup because he wasn't looking to overthrow Putin. He just basically wanted to overthrow the defense ministry, which is where his beef actually lies. Now, the new reporting from The New York Times is that the Sorovkin, Sorovkin, now just to put this in perspective, he was the guy who was running the war in Ukraine. He was in charge of all the Ukrainian forces, uh, in the, all the Russian forces in Ukraine. He was removed from his job in January. He's now the head of the Russian Air Force. Turns out that he uh, is reported to have known that this thing was going to happen. He put out a video on Saturday in which he encouraged soldiers to put down their weapons, uh, the Wagner soldiers, and to, you know, to to not do this. There are people who speculate from the video that he did not look genuine about it, and that the they, they felt that for some reason it looked. Uh, people describe it as being like a bit like a hostage video. Anyway. Fast forward to now, uh, and that's the reporting, that the, the Russian intelligence services knew about it, and the Russians are trying to find out who else was in on it. Because if the head of the Air Force, a guy who fully prosecuted the war in in Ukraine, was in on it with him or knew about it, why then was something else not done? So it sounds like they're searching around their military ranks for uh, who knew and what were they doing about it when they knew. And this all begs the question, did Vladimir P- Putin know about it ahead of time? And if he did, why were these people allowed to take a town in southern Ukraine and get within 125 m- miles of Moscow? And why is there a deal that prevents Sergei uh, uh, Yevgeny Sh- uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin from being uh, arrested? Why is he in Belarus? So a lot of unknowns, it, but it does feel a little more like a coup than it did.
3: Right. And why is he alive? Right. I mean, how, how is it? Apparently, there was some sort of deal right. with the Belarusian leader to let him live. It, it, so, so Putin today did this sort of stagey-looking. Here I am in a throng of crowd of people who love me, and he doesn't really go near people. So it is sort of yeah. interesting to see him actually with right. humans. Um, but it, it, the, the sense of of the stability of his regime. That that only it doesn't look too stable. Let's just put it that way. It is looking like there's very few people he actually could can trust. Right? Is that an accurate reading of the way people are speaking about it down there?
0: It it is. History will tell you that when you see things that are the end of regimes, this is what happens, right? The leader becomes paranoid. There are people around them who might be plotting. Now you think that if there was somebody around you plotting, the head of the Air Force, who else might have been in on this thing and right. how might it have succeeded? Then what do you do? Then you've got you have military in your major cities. You've got a military around the president all the time to make sure that that's not happening, which is military that's not in Ukraine in this particular case. Or you have a wounded bear who has to prove to the world that he's not wounded and maybe accelerate the attacks on Ukraine. One thing that's important, whether it's uh, Prigozhin or Sorovkin, they both had the same criticism that Russia's not being brutal enough in the right. way it's carrying out the war. These are not people who thought the war shouldn't be happening. So there's both of those things. And then there's the warning from the United States that be careful. The enemy of your enemy is not necessarily your friend. That's right. and Unstable Russia, as much as some people in the world would celebrate that, may also be a bad thing. So there's a lot more to go in the story. One more chapter today.
3: A wounded bear with nuclear weapons. This is actually quite terrifying. Uh, Ali Velshi, stay safe. Thank you, my friend. Much appreciated. Uh, And up next, a big, huge, huge announcement about a big, huge interview that was bagged by one of uh, our favorite friends and colleagues uh, with a very high profile VIP whose name rhymes with, whoa, Wyden.
7: (laughs) Back in a sec. something exciting to share that's a little closer to home tomorrow on this very program at this very time president joe biden will join us in what will be his first live sit-down interview since becoming president we don't have to tell you there is a ton to ask him about and talk to him about you won't want to miss it right here at four o'clock tomorrow
3: Now, in the biz, we call that a big get the great and wonderful Nicole Wallace making that big announcement a few hours ago. So be sure to watch Deadline White House tomorrow at 4 p.m. Eastern for her exclusive live sit down interview with President Biden. Rachel Maddow and I will join Nicole after the interview for analysis because, you know, the girls got to get together. As Nicole said, you don't want to miss it. That's a nice readout.